Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. And you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello folks and welcome once again to Wimbledon Relived, day two, another trip down memory lane. We've got 12 more of them to come. I'm very pleased to say that we have no uh, disastrous, disappointing, depressing uh, current tennis news to bring you at the start of today's podcast so we can crack right on uh, with our journey to the glorious past, David. Yeah, we can. I mean, just a mildly entertaining uh, argument between generations with Boris Becker and Nick Kyrgios, but we'll leave you to go and look that up. Um, this is all about two of the the greatest players we've ever had and one of the greatest rivalries, certainly, we've ever had. And, and frankly, the last couple of hours that we've just spent re-watching the end of the fourth set, the tie break, and then the fifth set was just a joy, wasn't it? Yeah, if you haven't gathered from David's clues there, we are going to be reliving the very, very famous Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe, Wimbledon men's final of 1980. Of course, the probably the most famous tiebreak of all time and uh, one of the most famous matches overall and uh, probably the, the highlight of, of one of the sport's greatest ever rivalries. You've managed to... To bring down the tone of all that, though, by mentioning Boris Becker and Nick Kyrgios' Twitter spat, which I was deliberately <laughs> trying to swerve, Matt. Yes, our friend Woolly said it's like a really shit band giving a really long encore at the moment <laughs> with all the fallout from the Adria tour. It's just like, when is this going to end? One <laughs> after the other. And... Um, uh, uh, a high-end um, fashion retail outlet, Farfetch, Farfetch had been dragged into the fray unexpectedly, which is, I, I mean, even in a year of unexpected events, I'm, I think that that really does take take the biscuit. Yes. So that is current tennis players uh, covering themselves in whatever the opposite of glory is. <laughs> Um, speaking of uh, Woolly, by the way, she is the uh, the lady responsible for our or my my I should say now previously David's uh, facts about the past. What happened when? Um, everybody ready for the best part of the show? Oh yeah! I mean, this part yesterday gave us Gaston Gaudio's <laughs> Twitter. Which, I mean, you've fallen down quite the rabbit hole with that, Matt. I literally scrolled all the way to the bottom of his Twitter (laughs) timeline to figure out when he started, when he started using emojis. I mean, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) And and actually, I initially, I was desperately trying to search why it happened, if anyone had talked about it. So I put into Google Gaston Gaudio Twitter, and the first thing that came up was at David Law Tennis, talking about Gaston (laughs) Gaudio's Twitter from 2013. (laughs) You're the only people that are into it or have even noticed. (laughs) Do Um, I have any answers? No, you just said in in case you're struggling to know what day of the week it is, 2004 French Open champion Gaston Gaudio is your man. Why am I laughing at my own jokes? Come on, that's a good one. Um, Gaston Gaudio didn't do anything in, in 1980, I'm afraid. Well, he was two, wasn't he? So we know that because we, we everybody now knows he was born in 1978. Don't ever forget it. Uh, born in 1980 were Francesca Schiavone, Martina Hingis, Venus Williams, 
Marit Safin, Fernando Gonzalez, Juan Carlos Ferrero, and Kim Kardashian. What a bunch. Good year for tennis players, isn't it? Yeah, Venus Williams now 40. Yeah, only one of those those players still on tour, and it's not Kim Kardashian. Um, the Police, Don't Stand So Close to Me, biggest selling single of the year. Strong, I'd say. Strong. Quite like that. Yeah, we like that. Uh, Ronald Reagan became the president of the United States of America. John Lennon was shot dead in Manhattan outside the Dakota building, which John McEnroe now lives in. Don't think he lived in it at the time, but there you go. That's that's my fun segue there. Um, who'd have thought I could have found a fun segue out of the assassination of John Lennon? Ah, uh, post-it notes were invented. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. Um, it was. How do you come up? How do you come up with the idea of post-it notes? I wonder. Well, I mean, you're looking at a piece of paper. You're thinking, wouldn't it be great if this was small and had a sticky bit on it? How great. come nobody came up with that before? I mean, well, like that's the definition of a great invention, isn't it? That you think, how did this not previously exist? Anyway. Uh, just to, to round off our Magical Mystery Tour of 1980, um, it was the start of the Iran-Iraq War. Um, the Rubik's Cube uh, made its debut and Mount St. Helens erupted in Washington State, killing 57. That wasn't the note I intended to end on. I'll see if I can find something cheerier. Um, the Rubik's Cube's had a comeback, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, let's go back to the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> um, has it? I heard I saw I saw them around a few years ago, having not seen them for about thirty. I mean, I think they've always always been around. I could you were you any good at them? I no. mean, I, I could only no. do the one side. Mm. No, my brother can do them, and uh, I can't even make a fist at them, which is a no. the tragic tale of my childhood. Um, <laughs> Nineteen eighty. David, we're away off the lost law years. We're also a, a little way off your tennis memory. Do you remember the Borg McEnroe match? Is it one of those ones where you can kind of convince yourself you you remembered it because c- you, you've seen it so much since yeah. since since that year? That's a good question because I properly remember 1981 which was the rematch between these two players, John McEnroe winning the title for the first time in 1981. I remember watching that, and I think I remember it because of the build-up. That I guess things that I might have heard on the news or in coverage of Wimbledon were telling me, but also my dad. I remember him, me asking, and I think it probably happened in 80 before I really knew what tennis probably was, but asking him, who are these people? And him explaining to me that Bjorn Borg had won this title four times in a row. And we now, because of Federer and Navratilova and and Djokovic more recently and Nadal and these eras where they've just gone flying past Grand Slam total-wise, we we normalise a little bit for Wimbledon titles in a row. Back then, it was just not something that happened at all. I mean, obviously, he won six French Opens as well as five Wimbledons. But as you, as we've heard in the commentary, both on the radio and, and in the TV, he was regarded as the champion of champions, the the dominant player of the era. As as, as good as all the others were, Connors, McEnroe, um, Lendl, it, Borg was the man. Yeah, he was the top seed uh, coming into 1980 Wimbledon, as you say, the the four-time defending champion. McEnroe was the second seed. Um, He'd beaten Bjorn Borg in the US Open final the previous year in 1979. Um, But he hadn't reached a Wimbledon final since that famous run he had as an 18-year-old in 1977 um, when he reached the, uh, he hadn't reached the semi-final since since that run in '77 as as a qualifier when he lost out to Jimmy Connors, got his revenge on Connors in the semi-final in 1980. David in a match which went quite some way to the fact that McEnroe was was booed onto court um, when walking out for for that final against Bjorn Borg and and. Wimbledon, I mean, Wimbledon now isn't particularly partial to booing, but Wimbledon then had never seen or heard booing before. No, no. Uh, and 
it's it's interesting because we've just watched the final and McEnroe's behavior is basically impeccable. You don't see any flashpoints at all. And then we've just gone back and watched the start of the match to sort of watch again the kind of entrance and to see the booing. And they show highlights, a few little moments from the semi-final against Connors. And 28 minutes in, McEnroe is asking for the referee to come out onto the court. And Connors is stood at the back, smiling and spinning his racket on his finger. And then he goes into the crowd and sits on the front row with the spectators, basically to laugh at McEnroe, who's losing his mind. And the, ten, the there was something almost chemical, it seemed, about Connors that set him off in a way that Borg calmed him down. And it's quite interesting when you when you try to think back to, well, what was the advent of John McEnroe, this, the wild man on the court? And the way he tells it is a match, I think, against uh, a fellow American or an Australian, I think it was at the time, Phil Dent. We think of Taylor Dent, his son being American. But he said, I, I was somebody who would give calls to my opponent if I thought that they were wrong. Um, and then somebody pulled me aside in the locker room and said, you don't do that. You don't. We don't do that here. And he said, and then one day I got angry about something that happened on court and I kicked my racket across the court and everybody booed. And I thought, okay, then, and I kicked it again. And I quit, and it just, and it, it almost started him off. And he, he just, and that's, that's when the, the whole reputation began. Frank DeFord describes the, um, in Sports Illustrated, he describes the, semi-final incident with Connors saying that McEnroe bellowed 14 times at the umpire that he wanted to see the referee, a display that drew the first public warning ever issued on centre court and jammed the BBC switchboard with anti-American diatribes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is the thing that, that I, as, uh, as a child, was aware of because of the household that I was living in that my mother in particular, who would only watch Wimbledon, the only tennis she would watch, is she would react to this stuff like one of those callers. It was all appalling, you know, and, and but she would love to gossip about it with the neighbours about how terrible he was. And that, that all rubbed off on me. Well, I mean, obviously, I'd, I mean, I wasn't around for the, the 1980 final or or any of John McEnroe's playing career, really. I mean, my first experience of him was was as a commentator and uh, as I was sort of first getting into tennis in the early noughties. And I remember asking my my parents about about young McEnroe, you know, current tennis player John McEnroe in the early 80s. And I remember them saying that they were supporting Bjorn Borg and I thought, what? How could you not have been supporting McEnroe? He was cool and fun and interesting. And they, I remember my mum saying... No, you don't understand. It's all good fun now. His 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 persona, his super brat persona. But back then, it was serious. He really was awful. Um, and I do think we we look back on it in a rather more misty eyed way than yeah. than people experienced it, it at the time. Because there could be there could be a nasty edge to it for sure. And it oh, yeah. it, it does make it all the more remarkable that we've just watched four hours of him play in the most probably the most high tension tennis match of his life or one of them and he was good as gold I mean he gave good face and really good hands-on hips action but absolutely no whiff of aggro at any stage Mm. Well, in the presentation, Dan Maskell, who was a fierce and vocal critic of his on BBC's coverage, and he was the doyen of tennis commentary, and somebody's holding up a sign in the crowd during the match that we've just seen, Dan Maskell for PM. That's how he was uh, he was revered. But he used to be fiercely critical of McEnroe. Uh, I remember there was a Queen's final where he just – you could tell that he was personally offended by his behaviour. In this presentation, he said, well, quite honestly, McEnroe's behaviour has been beyond reproach in this final, and, and, he, and he'd become a hero. And, and the reason for that good behaviour, we think, is because he was playing Borg and the respect he had for Borg. I was, I was watching this match yesterday, the first few sets of it, and I, I messaged our WhatsApp group saying, am I right in saying that McEnroe never had any of his bad behaviour against Borg? And... You, David, just said, yeah, that's right. I mean, he, he just didn't. And it kind of put me in mind of the conversations we have today about whether 
Kyrgios would behave badly when he plays Murray or maybe we've speculated when there's a female umpire, when there's just a figure on the court that he has great respect for, McEnroe, it seems that he's a different character and the only one is uh, is Borg. Mm. So they step out onto court, to <laughs> McEnroe to, to a chorus of booze. Bjorn Borg is just, I mean, he's a rock star, isn't he? He's universally beloved. It's funny, you know, four in a row, you might expect there to be a bit of Bjorn Borg fatigue, possibly, among the crowd. And had he fa- been facing a different opponent in that final, maybe some of that would have surfaced. I don't I don't know. But, I mean, it was a, a 100% Bjorn Borg loving. And then he makes a, a horrible, horrible start. 6-1 first set to McEnroe. And, and I wasn't aware of this, but I was reading some write-ups of, of the match. Apparently, Bjorn Borg was really known for that. Really, really known as being being a slow starter. And he was stretching during the opening set. 6-1 first set that he's lost. And yeah, he just can't seem to get his eye in at all. And I think that what kind of also comes across in the reading that we do in the, the, the various documentaries that you watch is that he was feeling the pressure uh, of this one. And um, apparently he used to have a, a routine. He, he was an incredibly superstitious man, which I, I didn't realize but he he was massively superstitious he he was always stay in the same holiday inn about 45 minutes away his, his rackets were already strung overnight yeah i know it's, it's it, holiday it's, it's inn a, yeah <laughs> and and this is the thing he, he was he was the biggest star hang on did you did you say 45 minutes away not even a local yeah. not even a convenient holiday inn they all stayed all the top players stayed in central london pretty much and and would party the night away and and that was that was just how it was at a um, holiday but, inn well <laughs> and you only stay at a holiday was, inn because it's convenient yeah that is <laughs> well he but he was a creature of habit mm-hmm. and the, he, he would have his rackets apparently strung every night so tightly that they would pop in the middle of the night um and he would as we as you can see in every final that he plays he's got a beard now he wouldn't start the tournament with a beard he would just he would just begin growing it and he wouldn't shave until he'd finish the tournament and and that was another of his superstitions and apparently he would always drive into the Wimbledon grounds in the Saab which was the uh which was the sponsor car a holiday inn in a Saab this yep. was like the world's biggest rock star yeah it's like my and Wimbledon he, he would uh he he would always ride in the same seat in the in the car and and apparently on this particular match, and I think he'd won his last 33 matches at Wimbledon, on this one, he invited somebody, one of his friends, to come in the car with them. So there was Leonard Berglin, who's his, who is his mentor and his coach, and there was his girlfriend, who had become his wife, um, and they were driving in together with this, this other party in, in the car. And he was saying, I think you'll win this one, Bjorn. Uh, and and everybody was really nervous in the car. I just didn't didn't like it. So that you could you could tell the pressure was starting to just weigh heavily on his shoulders by by this point. And I think we see it at the end of the match as well when he sits down. I, I remarked upon it. You can he looks lonely. He looks haunted in a way by by the just the the what's expected of him. I uh, I rewatched Borg McEnroe the the film last night in uh, in preparation for this. I, I watched it when it came out at the time at the cinema and and fans of the podcast will recall we did our one and only uh, movie review show <laughs> of that. Um, if people keep, make tennis t- keep making tennis films, we'll keep doing uh, reviews, but nobody has since then. Unfortunately, I forgot... Um, I'd already I'd already drunk uh, two gin and tonics, and I forgot that it was essentially a foreign language film. <laughs> um, and my level of concentration after two gins was was not sufficient, so I breezed over quite a lot of the Swedish dialogue um, and engaged with a lot more of the uh, the McEnroe scenes. Um, but certainly the the narrative arc that that they placed on it, I, do, I you know I can't speak for whether it felt like this at the time, was that. Bjornborg knew that it was only a matter of time before McEnroe got him and got the best of him and and overtook that rivalry. And it was a question of how long he could hold on for. Could he hold on long enough to win another Wimbledon? Maybe two. And of course he he did. 
um, that year in 1980. Spoiler alert, he, he lost the tie break, but he, he won the match, Bjorn Borg. But even, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping the gun a bit here, but even in those moments when he, it, just immediately post victory, it's almost as if he's thinking, well, I did it, but if it was that close this time, am I going to be able to do it again? It was, I don't know. I mean, he was only, what, 24 at the time. He went on to to retire the following year. I know he attempted to come back, but it it, it did look to me like he, he knew that, that, that McEnroe was coming for him and he was just trying to to hang on to his dominance as, as long as he could. And it comes across as though if I'm not keeping the streak up and if I'm not the top dog, then I'm not going to be doing it. Whereas we've seen Nadal and Federer go through these different stages of their career where they've struggled with injury or they've been knocked off their perch and then they've just come back. And, and there's never been a question mark in their minds that that's what they would do. This was very seemed very straightforward for Borg. Uh, either I'm the best or I don't play. Well, it seems to me that this this rivalry energised McEnroe. He got such a high off playing Borg, but Borg, I don't know, the rivalry, he didn't seem to like it as much. He 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 was intimidated by it, I suppose. And as you were saying, once he realised McEnroe had his number a year later, that was it. He was out of the game. Um, it's interesting how the rivalry just took a very different shape for both for both players, I think. And I, I think all the superstitions weighed heavily on Borg, and all the all the attention. I mean, it's it's really hard, I think, for us as people who weren't around then to appreciate what life was like for him. Well, um, well it must have been annoying that he won his first title in a Holiday Inn because then he had to keep staying in the Holiday Inn. Oh yeah, he must have <laughs> must have thought, oh, if only I'd if only I'd won that first one in the Ritz. There's a there's a great line from uh, Steve Tigner in the the book High Strunk, which uh, I highly recommend if you want to have a read of what this what the era was like. And he said when Borg first came to Wimbledon in 1973, people were so taken by him. He ma- he didn't utter a word. He didn't do interviews. He didn't, nobody heard from him. They just saw him. He was this, this mis- mystical figure. And this is what I think was so appealing. And apparently, I mean, it was the closest thing that you would get to the Beatles uh, in terms of following from from fans. And apparently in 1973, he was flattened by 300 girls chasing him. And when he was on the ground... Relatable, the David. They said, to, he, he apparently said, well, yes, I was a little scared as I lay in the dust on the street with girls all over me. But it was fun too. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone ever said those words before or since? <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing no. But I mean, this is the, I mean, the tennis rivalry, the tennis era, and I think Steve Tigner has also written about this, where tennis crossed over into cultural kind of influence. And I think, you know, just the kits that they were wearing were iconic. The fact that a film's been made about it was iconic. The The celebrity status that Borg had has probably not happened in tennis since i mean all the all the characteristics were of of celebrity really rather than more than just tennis yeah down to the fact that i mean john McEnroe was um was the first sponsory sponsee I'm not sure either of those are words. Sponsored person. Sponsored person of uh, of Nike, wasn't he? He was picked yeah. up mm. by by Nike after that 1977 run to the Wimbledon semi-final and they weren't making kit at at, at this stage in 1980. So he's wearing Nike shoes. Um but he's wearing I think Sergio Tacchini kit and I mean both of those kits that they were wearing they've never gone out of fashion, have they? Usually things come in and out, but I mean I mean, in particular, Bjorn Borg, but both of those outfits, there's never a stage when that Bjorn Borg outfit wouldn't have been cool. I mean, it would have been tight, <laughs> um, but not never uncool. Yeah, you've got to have a certain physique for that one. Um, <laughs> but but it's also noticeable just how much colour is on what they're wearing yeah. because it was it was still a predominantly white rule of clothing that you had to wear at Wimbledon, but it was nothing like it is now where even the tiniest little bit of colour. We were all laughing about Roger Federer's orange soles of his shoes. And didn't it look great? 
didn't it look great? Yeah. Was anybody yeah, saying, yeah. oh, God, it's such an insult to tradition that there's a red headband on show? But I mean, th- those were cool kits. I mean, some of the ones in the, in the early 90s, not so much. Um, but the, the other thing that, <laughs> that struck me was um, we're watching this match and they're playing with white tennis balls as well which they carried on doing until 1986 when they they went to yellow. And what I didn't realize is that white tennis balls stopped being used everywhere else in 1972, but Wimbledon insisted on keeping it as part of its white rule. So that will be why we didn't see any white tennis balls when we were reliving Roland Garros. We were having that conversation in... Yeah, because we knew they came in in 86 at Wimbledon, but we'd watched those early matches at Roland Garros Mm. in the 80s with yellow tennis balls. And Wimbledon were also last well late to adopt the six all tie break um that that had come in elsewhere earlier on in the 70s but Wimbledon only changed to it at uh, 1979 so this was only the second year of a six all tie break so John McEnroe wins the first set 6-1 it's all going swimmingly for him as we said Bjorn Borg a famously slow starter so maybe he would have been mentally prepared for for the Borg onslaught which which came next he he found his feet and uh, he won the the next two sets so he's two sets to one up I mean it's and he's got it's it's really a perfect indication of the tennis scoring system the end of that second set because Borg has not had a single look at McEnroe's serve the whole set and suddenly it gets to 5-6 and McEnroe serving to take it to a tiebreak and he gets a little bit edgy and suddenly Borg comes up with a couple of backhand passing shots to to pinch the second set and from there the whole momentum of the match just switches Borg's got not quite a spring in his, a spring in his step because he doesn't he doesn't really do that he doesn't really change his emotion throughout but you can see he's a little he's just more dialed in th- from the rest of the match and McEnroe slumps a little bit when he loses that second set and has a it sort of carries over and he, he doesn't play so well in the third set. And um, it's just a perfect illustration of just how a match can just turn on a, just on a dime. Yeah, you're almost thinking McEnroe needs some sort of umpire outburst in order to, to fire himself up. Mm-hmm. Because it, he did slump a bit and sort of retreat into his shell. He, he, you know, he's looking for that spark. And that was, that was I'm not sure he'd ever express it like this, but the, but that was why he used to have those outbursts you know they a lot of you know they are ill-advised because for most people they would they would lead to a dip in form but for McEnroe they used to to lead to a a surge more often than not I think that that was an interesting one some people believe that and others don't when you when you talk to McEnroe and to other players around there there is a debate to be had as to whether it helped him or hurt him because it certainly distracted opponents at times um but not everybody that i hear from is convinced that it did help him over the course of his I'm career give a little plug to the upcoming Yannick Noah interview that will be that, that David did that will be released after Wimbledon. And I think Yannick Noah's description in that of what John McEnroe is able to do on a court in terms of a player's energy, I won't won't spoil it because Yannick Noah describes it much better than I possibly could. But the way that basically John McEnroe was able to control the energy on a court and I think most of the time he, he did manage to sort of use the outbursts positively, but I'm sure there were... I'm sure there were exceptions. Well, that's the point, isn't it? I suppose if it affects exactly. your opponent as well, then you may well get the other hand. And I think the other thing is success-wise is also um, measured by off-court earnings and those sort of things. And look at his his fame and notoriety versus somebody who won the same amount as him, like Mats Verlander. He's got such a unique energy on a ten. I mean, a unique energy wherever he is, but obviously we been watching him on a tennis court and that was something I mean I'm going, going to go back to my uh, brief stint as a film reviewer here but that was something that I I was just in awe of really with with Shia LaBeouf's performance as John McEnroe in, in that film never thought I'd be in awe of anything about Shia LaBeouf but we are where we are um he captures that energy which I didn't think would be possible actually because it's such a unique weird energy that he has this mixture of arrogance and shuffling shyness this 
this he's not high energy but he is extremely twitchy and there's sort of a an understated franticness about him it's it's such a weird unique energy and i can see why it 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 dominates in a an arena but but not in the way that that you know you, you talk about you know people that have those kind of personalities which just just dominate a dominate a stage it's not like that it's sort of a, a weird dystopian version of that um <laughs> and yeah it, re- it really is captured perfectly um in that film i know john McEnroe wasn't particularly pleased with some aspects of the performance um and it certainly doesn't you know shy away from from his ragged edges i would say um but yeah it, it certainly captures something about john McEnroe, which i think is very very difficult to to put your finger on um so he's he's two sets to one down in this final and uh we're in a full set and it, it's it's on serve until the latter stages and then just as you described in in that third set matt it's it's McEnroe, it's McEnroe that blinks first it's McEnroe that that shows the the outward signs of the tension yeah so it's four all and McEnroe loses his serve and Borg has a has a chance to serve for the match at 5-4 to think that the that the tie break that everyone talks about was so close to not happening because Borg gets uh, gets two match points at 40-15 and I mean this is the moment where the match sort of ascends and elevates itself into I always think of if 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 tennis were taught in schools i mean firstly how great would that be but there'd be like <laughs> there'd be like a whole module on the borg McEnroe match in terms of what it said about tennis what it you know the the impact it had and why it was such a great match and it's this it's this stage in the match where it takes on that significance because the points McEnroe plays to save borg's first two championship points one of them with a a perfect backhand pass up the line and actually something else that's interesting is that Borg finds himself at the net on those two match points and he actually it's a bit of a misnomer that Borg is a baseliner I think relative to the day he was a baseliner but you would never call him a baseliner now he's coming in off all his first serves pretty much on the grass and he's at the net on both these two match points and McEnroe yeah passes him passes him with a backhand on the first one and then a combination backhand and then forehand volley drive volley winner for the second one um and the and the crowd absolutely erupts i mean if there had been boos at the start by this stage there were plenty of people on his side and wanting to see a great match and it just it just takes off from there the radio commentary on bbc at the time was electric at this point as well led by max robertson who was the voice of bbc radio for 40 years alongside a runner-up christine james truman david lloyd was in the commentary box as well and one of my all-time heroes heroes gerald williams and when borg has and doesn't take those two match points the commentary from Max Robertson is, now will Borg lose his ice nerve? He shouldn't. He's discarded those match points that he'd lost. They've slid off the ice. <laughs> and then when Mackin- and then McEnroe strikes and he says, McEnroe's broken back. He's given me the lie. Borg is only a four-time champion. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? If Borg hadn't gone on to, to win that match in that title, it wouldn't be... The four set tiebreak wouldn't be the source of his regrets, the focus of his nightmares. I think it would be, you know, as potentially paralleled with with Roger Federer in in last year's final, it would be the two match points on his own serve at five four. Yeah. yeah, that's a very good point, and that's that is just the beauty of sport and particularly tennis, the scoring system it has, the way one point two points can change your whole life your whole perception of everything that you've done and go on to do and what you know how how different would would everything be if he'd taken one of those match points and we were we never had that tiebreak what on earth would the bbc have shown in all of those rain <laughs> delays throughout the 90s goodness me we'd have just had to sit watching rain falling um 
But as it is, the tiebreak did happen. And it was it was one of the first tiebreaks that one of the first six all tie breaks that Wimbledon had ever seen. Um, as it happens, the day before <laughs> they'd seen a, a, a six all tie break um, in the uh, in the women's final, won by Yvonne Goulagong. Um But yeah, they'd only been introduced the year before. I think a few years before that at Wimbledon, they introduced eight all tie breaks. But Tiebreaks were a pretty new thing to the extent that the umpire had to do a little sort of explainer <laughs> to the crowd before they went into the the, uh, the tiebreak. He sort of waited for her. She said, quiet down, everybody. This match is going to be decided by a tiebreak. Um, first to six points have to win by two clear points. And everyone, there was sort of a, oh, right, OK, yeah. Yeah, we're on board with that. Sort of a, a little wave of like, oh, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> And every time the serve changes in the tiebreak, the umpire made it clear that there was a change of serve. Um, yeah, it's like he's explaining it yeah. as it goes along. But it, yeah. I mean, it's talk about a reward for introducing the tiebreak system. I mean, this I, bet is, he, I bet he was glad he he revised the rules of the tiebreak <laughs> that umpire before that match. He really earned his money, and it you know it's so iconic. That tiebreak, won by McEnroe, eighteen sixteen. He had had five set points in the tiebreak. Borg had had five match points in the tiebreak, as well as those those two he had in his service game going into the tiebreak. Yeah, one eighteen sixteen by McEnroe. I was I was nervous, David, that it it wouldn't live up to the hype. I, just as I'm, I'm nervous about rewatching Federer and Nadal from from '08. You know, it's sort of it can only disappoint, right? But and and yet yeah. it didn't. And, and it didn't on both TV and radio. There was the, the reaction I, I, from both the crowd and the commentators. Just they they supported what you're looking at with your own eyes. They made you feel how how it looked to our eye 40 years on which is one of just i can't believe what i'm seeing they knew at the time how great this was these are people who'd watched decades of tennis and dan maskell at the end of of the the tiebreak john barrett had been the commentator in the fourth set and then they switched for the fifth set and at the end of the fourth set tiebreak dan maskell said i i think this is some of the best tennis i've ever seen and you've got people like max robertson saying when it went to 15 all it's becoming impossible to find adjectives for this the crowd want it to end because it's now unbearable <laughs> and and that's that's how it felt was the crowd just could could not take any more of this they needed it to be over because they were so on the edge of their nerves and when the the decisive blow was finally struck and, and McEnroe won that tiebreak 18-16. Max Robertson said, there's a resurrection here in McEnroe. He's like a phoenix who was dead and has come to life again from the ashes. I'm getting the impression, David, that you you might quite like to, to go back in time and have the opportunity to, to commentate on this match. Well, I, I know my <laughs> limits. I, I couldn't do it as well as that. and um, But it was just... It was just such a joy because there were so many of my broadcasting heroes as well as my tennis heroes describing those moments and um, and, it, and it does genuinely live up to them. Shall we hear from the men themselves describing those moments? Oh, yes. This is uh, Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe speaking to you, David. How many, how many years ago on the Champions Tour? 13 years ago. Yeah, I interviewed both of them on a number of different topics, but obviously wanted to discuss the 1980 Wimbledon final. Um, and I'm just thrilled that we have a chance to put it all together now. Here they are. Well, when I lost that tiebreaker, I, I, I mean, I thought I'm going to lose the match. I mean, uh, I said it before, I say it again. That was my wor- probably my worst minute of my life, uh, walking from missing that set point in the tiebreaker uh, to walk to the chair and sit down and thinking, why am I playing one set more? I mean, here I have seven, eight match points. I should have won in four sets. And here I'm sitting and we have to play one more set. I cannot believe this. I thought I had him. And so it was, uh, it was another experience to see a guy who had already won it four times who I thought was going to sort of give in and didn't. So... It showed me that you had to find uh, 
another gear and more will if you're going to win something that you wanted really badly because he sort of took it away from me and uh, I thought that uh, for sure he was going to he would he would be affected by what happened I think he knew or he thought that I'm, I'm having this match now I'm, I'm uh, I thought he's going to win I mean uh, I mean the worst moments the, the worst two three minutes of my uh, life as a tennis player on the court was after that tiebreaker in women. And the fact that he was able to sort of move on, uh, it was it made me respect him even more. It, it, it certainly made me sort of take another look at my own game and, and that I had even wanted, I thought I'd played as hard as anyone out there and wanted it as bad, but it, I felt like I learned something. I had to do it to find... Uh, another avenue, even another way to get myself to try harder and to, to want it more. I mean, that's, that's not an easy thing to do in a way, but you have to sort of keep, even when things aren't going well, to try to keep, keep in it. And key thing, first game, fifth set, uh, I was down love 30, and uh, I mean, I won that game. And if, if, I mean, if I lose the first game, if, if I break my, my sorry, first game, fifth set, definitely he will win the match, but uh, I won that game and I played really well in the fifth set. I mean, tiebreaker, the worst two, two minutes of my life as a tennis player. One hour later, the best minute in my tennis life. Well, I uh, felt like um, it really wasn't, in a way, uh, too bad because I got a lot, of, a lot of good things came out of the match. Um, I had a, a new level of respect among my peers and among the, the people that watched it, their fans and the media. So, I mean, in a way, it was, it was sort of a match that I felt like I came out not as a loser. So even though it was unbelievably disappointing, I felt like in a way that the way people viewed me had the level of respect and, and appreciation for what I brought to the table actually went up. So it, it wasn't that difficult. Fascinating that both of them say say there that after that full set tie break <laughs> they both thought McEnroe would be the one to to go on and win it yeah I I remember when Borg described how he felt how how shocked I was I because of how little you you heard from him how little he gave away about how he felt at a, a given time I couldn't believe that this man because you can you cannot see that on his face even when watching it back 40 years on and knowing that he's he said that subsequently you can't see that he's internalized all of that the only moment you you re- recognize it I think in hindsight is when you see him s- slump to his knees in victory and then sit on his chair at the end of the match. And you can see how drained he is, how how much it's taken out of him. I, I sometimes talk about how deep Rafael Nadal has to dig sometimes to win these events and, and go to places that scare me. And, and looking at the face of Borg after the match, I got that sense. But yeah, it's, it's really something to actually hear it from him like that. Yeah, I mean, the... The victory for Borg is just enhanced by the nature of it and the character he shows to overcome that fourth set tiebreak loss. Because as you said, he had the seven championship points in that tie well, in that set, five of them in the tiebreak. He then has a further seven break points in the fifth set, which he doesn't take. So that's basically fourteen chances to kind of put McEnroe away. He doesn't take any of them. And I think the fact that he eventually comes through that makes his achievement all the more remarkable because he's had he's had to stare down the the very human feeling of not taking your chances, of failing, essentially, in those moments. And yet he's still managed to come through. And I think because of that, he's kind of facing not only McEnroe as an opponent, but he's facing himself as an opponent and this is something that um, again Frank DeFord wrote where he said we already knew the great Borg could beat any opponent in fact how much does it really matter five Wimbledons or four but this afternoon we found that Borg could not possibly be beaten by himself either and this is why victory matters so much because because there was so much opportunity for him to fold in that match after not taking those chances and the fact that he didn't 
just makes it an all the more remarkable feat and all the more human feat from someone who can appear to belong to some kind of higher realm the way he doesn't change his emotions throughout a match. You know, Macamo's the much more relatable character with his with his emotions on full display, but Borg actually did something there by overcoming himself. And that is, I mean, that is the ultimate human achievement, really, isn't it? I kind of want Frank DeFord to narrate my life. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or just sort of assess it and just come up with the words <laughs> yeah. that, that we can't in order to, to find a way to put it into some perspective. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. It was an absolute triumph of will, that fifth set from Bjorn Borg. And, and that's not to say that it was a, a failure of will from, from John McEnroe because what he did that day was, was also a triumph. And, and, and that, was, uh, that was evidenced by, by the way he had, he had won over the crowd. They were cheering for him by the end. He had a standing ovation and, and that would scarcely have seemed possible given the the reception that he that he had walking onto the court that day and although he looked an absolutely broken figure um there you could still detect some pride in there he knew he had he had been a part of something extremely special and and done something pretty special that day even if he didn't end up with the trophy I would draw some parallels to the figure that Rafael Nadal cut in the 2007 Wimbledon final after he lost in five sets to Federer and he was sobbing in the locker room afterwards, absolutely inconsolable. But then the next year he went and beat him. Um, and, and I think that it's the realisation, there's a realisation when they come to terms with the, the emotion and the upset that they've got that close to the man. And if I'm that close, well, I can probably go another step further too. And I was reading a an interview that McEnroe did just a couple of years ago with uh, Sean Ingle in, um, of The Guardian when he said that winning the tiebreak was the greatest feeling he ever had at Wimbledon. I mean, that it, it even surpassed actually winning the title. I think just that moment against Borg, it was, it was as though something had clicked, as you're saying, as though, okay, he didn't go on to win the match, but he knew that, He'd unlocked something that day and he would go on to win more matches against Borg and Wimbledon, finally. Mary Carrillo was was there for that match and, uh, of course, remembers it and uh, and its immediate aftermath very vividly. Um, let's hear from her. 
Yes, I remember it very well. And interestingly, uh, a lot of fans don't remember it properly. They'll go up to McEnroe and say, man, when you beat Borg in that amazing match. And John, of course, doesn't correct them. Why why would he do that? Yeah, thanks, man. That was a great match. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, John's like, yeah, I'll take credit for that win. Sure. (laughs) I think it's awesome. Um, I I, am... can I tell you that I have watched the BBC call of that match? And uh, again, I think that we gin up matches so much on American television. We show so many graphics and so many replays and so many fans and girlfriends and crying parents. And that match is such a beautiful watch because it is so clean. And even in that tie break, uh, they don't show replays, which made it feel even now when you watch it, it still feels well. You know what I mean? It just, they knew, they trusted the match on the Beeb. They trusted that, oh my God, this is, you know, they're, all we have to do is point cameras at this thing and let it play. And it was a, it was a, it was gorgeous. I, I still, um, only because, maybe because it is of my time and I had grown up with John McEnroe, maybe that I still consider it the most remarkable thing I'd ever seen, ever. Um, it was just, I loved, I loved how it played out. Um, I loved Bjorn's reaction when he won. Um, he, even he couldn't believe that he, John really thought after he won that tie break in the fourth that he was going to win the fifth. And he had a look to beat, to break board right away in the fifth. And then Bjorn just served out of his mind and never looked back and really didn't. Didn't give John much room in that fifth set. But I, here's what I remember. The next day, John and I were flying home uh, on the same plane, John's father and John and I. But keep in mind, I was back in cattle class, and John and his father were in first class. So, And I hadn't seen John after the match. Um, so once the plane was up in the air, I tried to pick my way forward into first class and keep in mind that you know, John had acted like, um, as Bugs Bunny would say, a maroon for much of those two weeks. And he was just driving people crazy, and they were still calling him a brat and a punk and everything else. And then he plays this glistening match for the ages. And I mean, it was every, anybody, even if you didn't like John, you had to give it to him, right? So I, I make my way up to first class, and there's a curtain separating me from, from him, from John. And I poke my head in, and the stewardess immediately tries to stop me. Um, I understand I'm pretty shifty looking, uh, especially in the morning. Um, But I saw, Catherine, I saw John had, his chair was flat out like a bed, and he was out cold. And Mr. McEnroe had every newspaper in the world, all the British tabloids who'd been creaming his son for two weeks, all the... He had a pile of them on his lap and he was reading one and he turned to look at me and there were tears coming down his cheeks. It was just, I will never forget the look on his face. Here's his heartbroken kid out cold and Mr. McEnroe is reading all these warm, wonderful words about his son and about this magnificent match. I hope that John woke up and got to see that. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Feels a shame for him to sleep story. through that beautiful parental moment. <laughs> no, I, I think I, I, I know I got to see it. And then the, you know, the stewardess told me to go bloody back to my seat where I belong. So, <laughs> but that was a, that was a magical, magical moment. So then why wasn't Borg McEnroe's greatest rival then? I, no, I think it was John's favorite rival. Uh, John loved that matchup. John really liked Bjorn. He, I, I, I think it was John's favorite rivalry. I don't think it was John's greatest rivalry. John has talked about romanticizing someone. They only played 14 times. I mean, that was the most famous of them. And of course, the next year, John got his first one and stopped Bjorn from winning his sixth in a row. And I think John had a, a lot to do with Bjorn finally leaving. Um, but not finally, he left at 26, but um, John, John just loved, John thought Bjorn was the coolest. He was a cool guy. He was a rock star, this guy. He was really cool. And John just loved that he could live on the same court with him. 
John even wanted to, you know, when Bjorn left the game and then he's told the ATP he wanted to come back and play some. And then the ATP told him, well, no, you've got to play a full schedule. And John's here like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Let him back. Let him play as little or as much as he wants. What do you got? John missed that rivalry. And John obviously had a long story rivalry with Jimmy. Uh, John had a long one with Lendl. He just didn't enjoy those guys the way and admire them. He respected them for what they could do, but he truly, truly considered Bjorn a great friend and a rival. It, thinking about that that um, story that you told about what, what Patrick said to John uh, yes. the, the evening of that 84 French final and, and, and John having that sense at the time of there won't be another chance. Yes. In, in contrast, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight after that 80 Wimbledon final, we know there were other chances. We know he got his revenge just 12 months later. Did he... Did he have a different feeling at the time after that final? Yes, a miss op- missed opportunity, but I do know there'll be others. Yes, and, and he proved it later that summer because he beat Bjorn in, at, at the US Open. I mean, yes, I don't think that ever... John knew that he was part of a great match. I think in the same way Andy Roddick knew that he was part of a great match, even while he was losing to Roger Federer in those Wimbledon finals. No, I don't think that ever shook John the way that French loss. And again, uh, that John lost to Lendl, it really hurt him. <laughs> he really didn't like that guy. Um, John so respected Bjorn and what he had already done and what he represented. So I think that that part of it was, was very different for John. So it hurt less losing to Bjorn. I think it, it, I think it did. And I think it only made John want to beat him more. Whereas I don't think John was relishing the next time he was going to play Ivan Lendl on clay. His favorite rival, but not his greatest rival. Thoughts? Mm. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with Mary because I think that although they only played each other 14 times, it was seven all. They had something on court that was just so great to witness. Um, just the, the experience of watching it. McEnroe, I mean, she's quite right. McEnroe believes and likes it the most. He he described it to me in an interview that, you know, we were we were the yin and yang. You know, we we just fit together perfectly. And and he loved him. He still loves him. He's he's still like a little school kid when he's around he can't get enough of being around Bjorn Borg and <laughs> and when I tried to, when I asked him to explain why he he said look when I mean aside from how cool he is um and and you know he was like well maybe if maybe if I hang around with this guy I'll get some of the attention off the girls the way he gets and all this sort of thing but he also said you know when I came on the tour I was kind of gate crashing a, a, an establishment that was already there and and people didn't like the way I behaved and they gave me a really hard time and Bjorn Borg took me under his wing and if Bjorn Borg's got my back well to hell with everybody else is is what he said and that's before they were playing these these incredible matches and when I first met the two of them it was in an airport in Doha in 1998, my first ever ATP Champions Tour event. And I was 25 years old. I was, I'd watched these. These were the two players that had played the first tennis match I'd ever seen on TV to, to my memory, which is the 1981 Wimbledon final. And I was absolutely petrified to meet these two and have to be handling their media commitments for the week in at this tournament. I was the go-between for, between them and the media. And I was scared to death. And, and Bork just was came straight up exactly as, as you see him on tv hello hello i'm, I'm beyond borg uh, nice nice to meet you and he didn't say much and off he went McEnroe said uh, looked at me and I, uh, I thought right i'll introduce myself hi i'm david law he says what's your name like this and i said um david law anyway the the course of the week went by and i tried to stay out of my way out of the way as much as i could but i remember they met in the final of this of this event and it was too sets and then they'd play the match tiebreak in the third and when the two players were about to go out onto the court McEnroe's got his arm around Borg and saying let's play two out of three let's play like the old days let's play two out of three and like this <laughs> and, uh, and he just didn't want it to end he didn't want the rivalry to ever end and um and yeah it was 
I to me, it's the greatest rivalry that those guys had. Well, it's be- I guess it's because he didn't get the end to the rivalry during their playing days. Like it was cut so short, and I think it's fascinating that we're doing Borg McEnroe just a day after doing Navratilova ever, which is obviously the complete opposite in terms of the fact that they played 80 times they wrung every little thing out of that rivalry we know exactly how those two matched up against each other in all the possible scenarios whereas Borg McEnroe 14 times condensed into a four-year period their Grand Slam encounters condensed into a two-year period and it's defined in a way by the matches they didn't have and therefore it's taken on this kind of mythic quality but i do think that i mean i I mean i'm fascinated by rivalries general you know just generally and that's they sort of hook me on the sport and i do think that the point of a rivalry is i mean it's something that osaka talked about at the australian open she wanted to have a rivalry why because kind of the story you tell together is bigger the imprint you leave in the sport together is bigger and i think McEnroe and Borg the reason why I would say Borg was McEnroe's greatest rival is because that story together was bigger than McEnroe Lendl or McEnroe even McEnroe Connors I think McEnroe Borg is the one that has left the biggest impact on the sport Um, perhaps for the matches they didn't have perhaps for this match in particular the 1980 Wimbledon final but you know it just you can't argue with you know, just the place that that has in tennis history. I mean, that was all very persuasive from both of you, but I, I like my rivalries with, with aggro. <laughs> <laughs> and also, who am I to disagree with Mary? I mean, if if anyone knows John McEnroe, it is, it is Mary Carrillo. And how great to have her talking about him, just getting her insight, you know. Yeah, it's always I, w- great, but especially on McEnroe. I've, well. I've, I've listened to that. That story of of the plane ride home and the tears of uh, John McEnroe Sr. I think four times now, and I have shed a tear every time. It's uh, it's quite something, and I and I, yeah, I know <laughs> parent child relationships are are uh, are difficult and multi layered, and uh, I don't think John and his dad was any different. But I I hope that he knew how uh, how proud he was both in that oh, moment yeah. and and generally it, when when he came to the, there was a champions tour event in belfast and john McEnroe senior came to that event uh, with him and and i mean he was simultaneously appalled by some of his behavior even that week he was really it upset him to see because he he always used to say you're better than this you're better you know he couldn't he didn't like to see him doing that but he was his biggest fan he was just absolutely his biggest fan you saw him at every match and the pride that they actually did an interview together for bbc radio uh, which was a lovely moment and the pride with which they had of being father and son was evidence for all to see i've got something in my eye again (laughs) (laughs) um what a lovely note to end on i I, i'm sure bjorn borg's parents were proud of him too (laughs) p.s um yeah just pick up on one more thing mary said yeah absolutely they trusted the match Mm. i would i would like to get that tattooed on my forehead (laughs) if possible because tennis tennis is its own soundtrack so much of the time the 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 rise and fall of the crowd the umpire announcing the score the the little mutterings that the players might have and She's right. That that broadcast is just such a joy, just to sit and let it play and watch and and just sort of go along with it. And um, yeah, I think also the pace of play. I mean, McEnroe's kind of slow, Borg's fast. It's got it's got all the ups and downs, the undulations. It's um, it is a real treat just to watch back. Oh, the past was great. <laughs> we can keep doing the let's, past for the let's future let's stay it's there awesome. what, what part of the past are we going to tomorrow matt we are going uh five years later to 1985 and 17 year old boris becker winning the title oh yes 
Yeah, beating Kevin Curran in the final, yeah. who uh, who David's interviewed just yesterday. Yes. Spoke to him yesterday and spoke to a number of people that are part of that Boris Becker journey. And, uh, and you'll be hearing those in tomorrow's show. It really was a really fun one to, to investigate the, the stories behind the scenes. And I also have such vivid memories of it myself as a 12 year old kid. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm having the, I'm having the best time. <laughs> we're, we're finally entering the, the territory, uh, of, of David's vast, vast memory bank so uh should be fun not that you know the last two have suffered from from not being in your memory david but um they've been great and uh just as with the uh, french open relived pods i mean they're a treat aren't they they are they're expanding our tennis broadcasting horizons with every episode so hope you're enjoying them too um shout out to gerald um, who's still busy being excellent and nonchalant in uh, in Berkshire somewhere? Also answering fan mail on Instagram. I've seen. <laughs> oh, is Gerald at risk of becoming too big for his boots? Well, he's just embracing his sizable moment. Okay, okay. Make hay while the sun shines, Gerald. Go for it. Uh, he's our lovely. Uh, he's our lovely Wimbledon mascot, Gerald the cat, um, and he gives great face, and he's excellent. Um, so we and uh, and Big Boots Gerald will be back tomorrow for our for our third Wimbledon relived. We'll see you then. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 